I wonder if some of it is just, it's that gap, maybe, and, and we keep talking about gaps, but like that gap between, I know this is wrong and I know this is wrong and I have to do something about it. Like there's something that keeps us on the one side. So one would think that we would have more of that spirit of saying, hey, let's go fall off the edge. But I think our culture, um, you know, maybe we can be edgy in our clothes or our choice of what we put on a taco. I don't know. It seems like real change um, is very scary. And I, I guess that's it. It's scary. Up in the woods, I'm down on my mind. I'm building a stills to slow down time. I'm up in the Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen, and non-gender binary conformings, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Extinction Rebellion Kansas City's official podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Hess, thanking you for tuning in to a pretty much entirely unedited, agriculture-heavy, but very much worthwhile discussion with landscape designer and compost scientist-artist Hilary Noonan, wherein we discuss the gravity of the climate crisis, how civilizational praxis can transform once thriving and resilient ecosystems into derelict deserts, and what she herself is doing to rebel against our looming extinction. You know, pretty run-of-the-mill sort of stuff. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the Kansas City chapter of Extinction Rebellion U.S. for lavishly supporting the production of this podcast. You can reach out to us from the comfort of your couch or bed or lounge chair or what have you on Facebook or Twitter or the Instagram. Shout out to Khan Yeezy for the intro music and Chesky for the outros. And so, yeah, without any further ado, let's get into it. Hi, my name is Spencer Hess, and I'm here, the host of the Extinction Rebellion KC Cast. And for the first interview, we're interviewing Hillary Noonan and she can do a way better job of introducing herself than I can. So here she goes. Hi, 
Uh, my name is Hillary, and um, so I, I have a master's in landscape architecture, but um, when I was doing my internship, uh, the architecture firm I was at was talking about regenerative design in buildings. I thought, don't we have a lot more room for that outside the building? Um, so I just started digging for what regenerative design would be, and what I found is that you really have to uh, know something about soil science. You need to be aware of soil microbes. And I now have a microscope on my kitchen counter. Um, I discovered that I couldn't get uh, what I needed for my projects here in town. So um, I really started getting into um, how to get healthy soil um, from a number of different aspects. So I, I go back and forth between farm conferences and landscape conferences because both of them have um, a large part of the puzzle, but they're just these little bits that when you understand how they fit together, um, the whole thing becomes more clear. So, um, and once I realized the the incredible links to climate change. Uh, that was it. I'm, I'm all in. Gotcha. So I guess that leads to our first topic of discussion, which is that Extinction Rebellion, U.S.'s first demand is for the government and the media to tell the truth about the climate change situation crisis. And since they won't or can't, would, would you be up for telling the truth as near as you can grasp it? Oh, absolutely. Um, in the same way that our government has utterly failed in terms of the coronavirus, um, they have been failing us for a long time on climate. Uh, we have been fed a lot of misinformation from big companies that uh, fed us that information for them to make more money. Um, and so it is incumbent on us as individuals and in the organizations that we form and support to get the word out, to understand what our part can be in dealing with climate change um, and how best to do that from where we are. Gotcha. And so how, how dire do you think the situation is and what should be done? If you were like, well, um, right. So before uh, the fires in the Amazon last summer, uh, the best guess we had is that we had about 10 years um, before catastrophic effects, um, which does not mean that there wouldn't be a lot of events leading up to that that would be catastrophic for individuals or towns. Um, like pretty much total collapse. Um, 
and I think it's really useful to look at um, what's going on with the coronavirus, like how afraid they are of the markets, because mm -hmm. it gives you an idea. You know, I I'm not an economics person, um, and so I I couldn't envision in my mind what the economic meltdown would be like, mm -hmm. um, but. It's, it's instructive to sort of see the panic that they're in um, because the panic's going to be that much worse uh, mm -hmm. with climate change. Um, and so doing this as quickly as possible, on t you know, when they started, when Bolsonaro started burning so much of the Amazon last year, he really um, speeded up the process. Um, some of that's being mitigated by coronavirus because uh, there's so much industrial pollution that's not happening right now. Um, so, you know, nature has a way of using resources very efficiently. And so if something is unhealthy, if it's a plant or a tree or an animal, has a way of killing it off very quickly so that those elements can go back to the earth and something healthy can grow in its place. Um, we can see it in plants uh, because they now put out so much more pollen than they did even a few years ago because of the amount of um, carbon in the atmosphere. To, to them, that is a threshold, it's a trigger. Um, you know, the tree may not be thinking in the way we think, mm -hmm. but that trigger says, hey, there's a fire close by, put out a lot of seed because you may be gone tomorrow. And mm -hmm. If you get the seed out, a new tree can grow. So I can't help wondering about the link between this virus and climate change. You know, where they had these animals in a market was a very unhealthy place. When you take things out of nature and you make them very unhealthy, um, nature's way of dealing with that is, you know, kill it off quickly um, and let something healthy grow. We, we may be the unhealthy thing now. Sure. Um, it, it's not a very happy way to look at it, but, uh, you know, like, hopefully it gets more people acting. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's been one of the interesting things, like, both since we're in the early stages of freaking out about the coronavirus, but also when the Chiefs won and, like, all downtown got shut down, that there's this idea, like, climate change, we can't do anything about it, or you know, it would be such a hassle to start to address these things, but we can shut things down or slow things down um, for uh, public health emergencies or like, you know, basically a holy day. Absolutely. So. And that holy, that holy day needs to be in honor of Mother Earth. Mm -hmm. It's... The longer we wait, all of nature works on thresholds, right? Like energy doesn't end 
But if change is too fast, instead of a phase transformation of something changing in a healthy way, you get a bifurcation. So for human beings, that's, you know, aging. You know, you're, you're born as a child, you get older, that's a phase transformation, you become an adult, and eventually you hit that bifurcation, which is death. Energy hasn't actually ended. It's just not necessarily the energy you want to have dinner with, um, but that energy continues. So the longer we wait to work on and address climate change, the closer we're getting to that bifurcation. The sooner we act, the sooner we can affect that phase transformation before we hit a bifurcation. And farmers are our biggest hope because of the amount of land that they have under their care. Um, but when you think about the, whatever it is, 40 million acres of lawn that we have, uh, that in just in our country, um, that could also be sequestering carbon. Mm -hmm. so and yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, and what, do you, what do you imagine that transformation should look like? both like on the farmers end of things and all those suburban lawns. Right, so um, that change involves a number of things. It is um, all dependent on taking care of the soil because that's what nature intended for soil to do with carbon, right? Carbon is in the air, the plant gets it from the air, uses the carbon it needs to build whatever in the plant and feeds the rest of that carbon into the soil, uh, most of which is taken up by soil microbes. All right, so those soil microbes are holding that carbon in the soil. That's how we have oil. It's how we have coal, um, leonardite, you know, various other substances in the soil uh, that are the eventual outcome of that process. So it's because we've been taking it out at such a fast rate, burning it and putting it in the air that we need more than ever for our soils to be storing it. Now our soils are entirely capable of taking that carbon and putting it back in the soil. That's not a problem. The problem is that with what we've done to soil, we have stopped it from having that capacity. And, and how have, what have we done? Um, so it is the use of tilling um, that oxidizes off organic matter, uh, which carbon, that's part of your carbon. Um, and real, real quick, just to rephrase that simply, by tilling, we're adding oxygen into the soil and then that interacts. <laughs> You're not, yeah, you, yes, you are temporarily adding oxygen to the soil, like that's the idea, except that it's only that way very briefly, because when you oxidize off that, you know, so the oxygen is going in, you're oxidizing off the carbon um, and your organic matter, and so when that gets lower and lower, then your microbes don't have that support 
So then some part of your microbial system dies. Well, once one part of it dies, it's like throwing pottery on a potter's wheel. You know, you get a little bit of a wiggle and pretty soon the whole thing is just blah. Right. So when you're tilling, you're doing all this damage to the soil, which is meant to do a good thing. But think about where the Fertile Crescent was where the Garden of Eden might possibly have been, it's now desert and it's desert from farming. Um, and it wasn't deliberate, you know, they were just trying to raise food. Sure. Um, they didn't have the science then that we have now. They didn't have the understanding that we have now. We have to update what we do by the science that we know and we have proven um, to reflect better soil practices. You do not have to till to grow food. Um, there are some people who say, well, every three years, you know, there are various ways. The thing is, if you're going to till, you have to make up for that immediately because you've done damage. And so to do that, you take yourself backwards. Um, so synthetic fertilizers, um, are also very damaging to soil. Again, they kill off part of your microbial system. Um, then all the things that you need because you did the tilling and the synthetic fertilizers, so then the herbicide and the pesticide and the fungicide and the nematicide, all of these biocides that are there to kill something off. So now you've made this really unhealthy place so what does nature do? Nature sends things to kill it off quickly. So what does that mean? You have to put more in. So you as a farmer have to spend that much more money to fight the things that are being drawn in by what you did the first in the first place. It's really a vicious circle and farmers are really screwed. Sure. So by learning these different farming methods. Um, and I don't care if you're on, you know, broad acre, 100,000 acres, or you're on an urban farm. Using the soil health principles um, brings your soil health back really quickly. Uh, all of a sudden, your soil can hold more water. Um, what's excess can go into the aquifer. Your plants evapotranspirate more water into the air. Along with that, they're sending bacteria. Ice crystals form around the bacteria that aggregates that water vapor together and rain. So to get out of a drought, the best thing you can do is take care of your soil. Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of rain system that we saw last spring through the summer where the, the Missouri River was above flood stage from April to November. It was nuts. Gabe Brown has shown up on his ranch in North Dakota, when he first started moving cattle the way that Alan Savory taught him, it took an hour to infiltrate a half inch of water. He now infiltrates that half inch in four and a half seconds because he's built the organic matter in his soil just from the way he's moving cattle. Mm -hmm. 
because the cattle are going and they're grazing and they're pooping out and that's and yeah go yes that. and the way alan savory teaches it basically uh the the rancher is the predator so you move the cattle the way predators would move prey okay so the the cattle it's called something like the second bite principle you know the cattle take a bite and you move them on it's if you see, if you go out to the Flint Hills where you're allowed like six um, cow-calf, I think it's six on, on a lot of that acreage out there per acre. Mm -hmm. If you put six cows on an acre, are they evenly spaced on that acre? No, they're here, or they're here, or they're, you know, right at the water hole. So if you make that area that you're grazing much smaller and you move that fence as you see the the grasses and the forbs being chewed on so you're moving it um, depending on how on what you observe i had a friend last summer in vermont they had a drought at one point she was moving her milk cows three times a day so that they wouldn't overgraze an area so she could get them onto fresh turf. And the cows pulling on that grass actually spurs root growth, which then sets up more growth. It's a very healthy system. There's, there's even a piezoelectric pulse in the soil from the grazer walking on the ground. So you could build soil carbon without the grazing animal, but not only would you have to supply the inputs of the organic matter, et cetera, you'd also have to go out and pull on your grass and jump. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it <laughs> there was a great interview yesterday with a woman who has um, several vegan restaurants in California, I believe. And on her farm, she has cows and goats and sheep and ducks and chickens and all of these animals that she doesn't eat, but she needs them to build her soil carbon because the farm she bought used to be a potato farm. Potato farms are generally horrendous for the environment because they till and till and till to make it really fluffy, to make it really easy to get those potatoes. Mm -hmm. So to reclaim that farmland, she needed animals in the mix. She doesn't eat them, that's fine, but they provide a lot of ecosystem services within that, um, that system that she set up. Mm -hmm. So basically like homesteading employees. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And, you know, the problem, one of the problems she has is that um, USDA has all sorts of rules about what can be on the ground so she has an orchard but there are times when they don't want to let her send her fruit to the packing house because deer came through the orchard meanwhile the guy next to her is spraying roundup under all his trees and that's fine mm -hmm. but because a deer came through and there's deer scat on the ground when the usda inspector is there she's not supposed to send her fruit to market. Yep. Just twisted. 
And then it, it's going on, you know, there's, so there's that. And then there's the wider context of we have this ecological crisis and we need to be drastically changing what we're doing. Yes. And the regulators are looking out for functionally the interests of corporations. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a model that, you know, they thought made sense in the forties. Um, it was 80 years ago. <laughs> we might want to rethink that. Right. Um, and we need to make those turn those changes quickly because we need to support those small farmers. They're really important. Um, they're really important for food security. Um, and just the, the, all the systems in the US or for whatever country you live in, being able to supply your own food is essential. You know, Cuba was in big trouble when the USSR went under because they weren't getting 6 million barrels of oil a day. So they had to learn to farm and to grow food because most of what they were raising, um, all of it owned by the government at the time, uh, it was all being, it was all commodity crops and it was being sold off island to give the island income. All of a sudden, they had to stop that kind of farming, mm -hmm. and start raising food for people on the island. Mm -hmm. um, it really made a, a serious yeah, Made a huge difference. So the, the government held on to a third of the farms. They gave a third of the farms to co-ops and they gave a third of the farms to private owners. And that system has worked so much better. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting because like I grew up in Western Kansas and I've, I was raised by accountants, lawyer, farmers. And you would think that the arguments for sustainability and you know food sovereignty you would think this would also just be totally in line with like national security interests. Yes. Um, and yet somehow or other in most people's minds, they're split. It uh, is. I don't the, know. I don't, do you have any insight about how that happens? Like how can you, how can that split occur in someone's mind? Sure. I mean, part of it is our whole political discourse where, um, Democrats are accused of wildly spending money and Republicans are supposed to be so fiscally responsible. And yet, if you look at the debt through Republican administrations, it always goes way up, far beyond what happens during a Democratic administration because the Democrats are always on the ropes going, no, no, we're not trying to spend money. No, no, we're not doing that. So a Republican can, can get away with doing a lot of spending um, because they've got the rhetoric because people, why do we accept that? Mm -hmm. I, that part I can't answer. I do not understand it, but that's what we've believed for a long time and it continues. The, the guy who's now the head of the Army War College in Leavenworth uh, will go anywhere you want him to go and talk about climate change because the Pentagon realized years ago mm -hmm. that the number one security issue for the U.S. is lack of water or water scarcity in other parts of the world caused by climate change. Mm -hmm. They've been on this 
for years. And I don't know why we can't hear that. He goes around to all these big churches in the suburbs and talks about this stuff. And it, I don't know. I don't know why people don't hear that more. Um, but, you know, people on the left don't want to hear him because he's a retired general. People on the right hear him and go, yes, 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 and then totally ignore what he just said. And then back to shopping at strip malls and Netflix binging in their suburban homes. Yep. Yeah, and I'm for Netflix binging in my city home. <laughs> uh -huh. Sorry. I do have it on all the time because all, I work alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> I wonder if some of it is just, it's that gap, maybe, and, and we keep talking about gaps, but like that gap between, I know this is wrong, and I know this is wrong, and I have to do something about it. Like, there's something that keeps us on the one side, and... Uh, I don't know if it's peer pressure. Um if it's just something new. Um, I, I kind of wonder sometimes, um, my pediatrician told me once that he thinks there are far more people in the US with ADHD because our European ancestors stood on the edge of Western Europe and said, oh, come on. We won't really fall off the edge of the world. Let's go try it. Um, so one would think that we would have more of that spirit of saying, hey, let's go fall off the edge. But I think our culture, um, you know, maybe we can be edgy in our clothes or our choice of what we put on a taco. I don't know. It seems like real change um, is very scary. And I, I guess that's it. It's scary. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like our cultural messages that we put out and that we receive are not that we're scared, that we're governed by fear, that we're living in, I don't know, what's sometimes called like the risk society. Yes. Uh, and yet all that stuff is, is very true that I think more often than not, we are governed by our fear and our like petty self-interest. Well, I mean, that's what happened in 2016, for sure. Um, I would say, I, I went to a conference um, that was all about how to tell the story. And there was a woman teaching the first session I went to who was from a PR firm in Manhattan for a long time. And she talked about the USDA five a day um, media thing. Yeah, it was, it was, they had it for a number of years. They spent $20 million, I think, on PR for that program. They made zero change. Um, it did not increase the amount of fruits and vegetables people were eating. And what she said is rational thinking has very little to do with our decision-making. Decision-making is almost entirely emotional. 
Um, and so what we have to do is find ways of not, you know, not the ads of children crying or sick animals or whatever and saying, oh, please give. But how do we tell the story in a relatable way? And then we spent the next couple of days looking at organizations that were doing that uh, without necessarily starting with that idea, but in just um, supporting the voices of people who are affected by whatever the issue happens to be. So um, one organization is a, a thing that moms in Boston pulled together, and I don't remember what the issue was, but it was something about taking their kids to school. Um, and it became very powerful. Uh, there was another organization that started doing these radio broadcasts, um, I think in Africa. They found it so effective. They're now doing it in the US. They're doing it in Latin America. They're doing it all over the place on all sorts of issues. They're using it for whatever the issue is in that place in the world. They are providing writers and a radio show, but the radio show is written by people in that community and the writers just help them put it into a form, you know, right. for, for yeah. Um, and so it's people from that community talking about issues that community has and playing it out in a situation where it's not your family, it's not your neighbor's family, so it's not somebody you already have an opinion about. <laughs> um, but you, you it's, don't have emotional attachment or disattachment or, or, yes. or antipathy. Yes, so um, it's just this, you know, person and I think the reason one of the reasons the writers are important is um, you know if you make a movie and you tell people everything it's not very interesting mm -hmm. um, if you tell the story in the movie in the way that people in the audience who are watching it are making up part of it you've got them and so telling these stories on the radio is that way of letting it play out a little bit each week so that in between people are making up, oh, is, is she going to do this? Is she going to do that? Oh, if I were in that situation, I'd do this or I'd do that. And so it becomes very powerful because people all through the community are making up the story and thinking about the possibilities and coming to um, decisions and consensus in a slower way. It's not everybody joined together today and we have to make a decision that affects the rest of our lives. Um, you know, it's spread out over a period of time. There's lots of time for everybody to talk about it. Um, and it may not be 100% consensus at the end, but you've made so many inroads to people understanding their own issue and how 
it is best for them to deal with it. Um, it's very powerful. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from that model. Um, and it's, it's just a very different way of thinking. So it's hard to figure out how to do that, but I think it's the way to go. Sure. And then let me try and like summarize that and, and tell me if this seems accurate. It's almost like some sort of narrative or framework has to be created to look at a situation. And then the question is, how do you allow average people to engage with and act actively support something positive without like having their whole lives on the line or it's all they do? Um, yes, or that everybody else knows their business. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, sure. I think so. Um, okay. And, and so to apply that, I think to what we were talking about earlier, I think what we're in agreement on is we have this view of the world where it's like there's nature and then humans get involved and we start farming. And it's like, you can kind of go, you can do it regeneratively and it's sustainable and, and beyond sustainable. And we can cultivate these rich ecosystem or yeah, ecosystems, agricultural systems. Or we can do, go with like the industrial models that have been handed down to us that now like all sorts of people, it's not just like radicals in Berkeley, you know, like I went, so I got a horticulture <laughs> degree from K-State, which is kind of like a belly of, of the beast. And right. I'll never forget, I was in a, a soils lab and the TA gets up and she writes on the board, something like the USDA says we can lose two tons of, of topsoil off an acre of land and that's sustainable. And you know, an acre is big, two tons. Let's hypothetically say that that's okay. You're shaking your head, I, I agree. But like, <laughs> let's, say, let's say it does work. Um, and then she says, this is what we're losing on average. And it was five tons an acre a year. And then we all just kind of sat there in silence and I'm waiting, cause like I've already, you know, like I've already, you know, taken the pill or whatever, like I'm on board with this as a problem. So I wanted to see how all of these more mainstream, they're gonna go be farm consultants or reps for John Deere. Um, what do they say? And we just sat there for like in silence for 10 seconds and then we just moved on. Um, yeah. And so it's like yeah. we, we can do, you know, the regenerative system or we can slowly or actually faster than it took us to turn the Fertile Crescent or North Africa into a desert. Uh, and, and isn't that the story? You know, every once in a while, the Pentagon will release these documents where it's like, yeah, large parts of America are going to turn into desert. But Absolutely. I mean, uh, most of Kansas becomes mm -hmm. a desert because of the damage we've done once we turn off the irrigation. Yep. And we're so, rapidly depleting the Ogallala. And there again, you know, right. these fevered extension agents get sent out and they talk to farmers and everybody agrees this is a problem. But it's like, well... If it costs me ten dollars to pump water, but I can make twenty on my corn this year, what am I gonna do? Right. Uh, and people are so tied into that system. There's a, a farmer I talk to on a regular basis, Gail Fuller, down in Severy, Kansas. And he told me one time if he wants to get a bank loan for say buying seed or a piece of equipment. Um, if 
for him to get that loan, he has to get crop insurance. Mm -hmm. Crop insurance is a USDA program. So if USDA doesn't think you're doing things the right way, you can't get crop insurance, therefore you can't get a loan. So if the deer walks through your orchard or you have a cover crop in between things, um, that's not, you know, the, the designated fallow period, et cetera, um, then you can't, yep. can't get crop insurance and you can't get a loan. Um, and it's, I mean, you're from Western Kansas. How many farmers do you know that don't have a day job? <laughs> well, I mean, there's quite a few of the big ones that have put a lot of the farm, other farmers out of business. So right. I guess I would say the farmers I know are doing well, but that's only because they're one of the very, very few left. So um, because they're that big, and so they've got the economy of scale that's on that model, that economic model we've been taught. Right. Um, but Which is all big machine you, chemicals. And you, but you can't always get bigger. Yep. You can't always get bigger. And yet this is what we believe, that we can infinitely <laughs> grow. Yes, uh, GDP, GDP. Uh, there are there is at least one country in the world where they uh, go by GDH, mm -hmm. uh, which is yes, gross domestic happiness. Yeah, and which one is that? Uh, Bhutan. Bhutan. Hmm. Yep, uh, the king that they have now will be the last. Um, he's known that his whole life. That's the way his father had had deliberately set things up, um, but they are taking a long time to transform from a monarchy to a democracy. And they're making very sure that they keep their culture at the same time. So they're... And, and if, what, a, what a different world, like that where there's like a conscious democratic project to maintain culture versus where I'm from in Western Kansas, where they're about family and rural values. And yet the communities are being ravaged by on the one hand, like the few farmers that are successful getting bigger and bigger and pushing out the smaller ones. And then the brain drain where everybody goes to the cities. And right. They get their McMansion and they attend to the church where the Pentagon guy comes and talks to you, but you don't listen. <laughs> I don't know, I feel like we're being pretty good. You got it. <laughs> yeah. It's a kind of desert, I think. It's like a cultural desert, an intellectual desert in a way. A desert of the mind. Mm -hmm. Of the soul, maybe. Nice. Okay, so, so, we talked, <laughs> so we talked about that. So what are you doing uh, to try and rebel against extinction or green the desert or something? So, yeah, I have, I'm going in a number of directions at once. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's see, with my master's degree, <laughs> um, I'm a designer, so I can design uh, landscapes with wonderful native plants and um, healthy ecosystems. Um, I make a product that actually 
takes the place of animals in your landscape. Um, so you can get carbon sequestration going in your um, urban or suburban landscape um, or your and, urban farm. And is that just regular compost or some sort of spray or? Um, it's a compost tea. Uh, so I use compost, although that's not, that's only one thing in it because to really get the effect I want, I make it sort of crazy rich with biology. If we tried to get specific kinds of biology to answer specific plants, and it would be insanely expensive. It would just be crazy. So instead, it's more of a shotgun approach. So trying to get as diverse a mix of species growing out in that tea, um, along with lots of humates, um, and then getting that on soil and boy, do you see it take off. It's the first time you see a big difference, um, but then, you know, depending on whether or not you have enough organic matter in the soil, it's really best if you put more compost in and get the tea on top of it. Um, I can't buy a compost here that is biologically active to the degree that you want to see. Um, you know, these processes in nature are on geological time. So if it's your yard, you don't really want to wait for geological time. <laughs> you want to get it going. And we need to get it going now to sequester carbon. Um, so getting all of that going in the soil, um, I buy literally truckloads of compost. Um, and then I make this tea from other sources and get that on the compost um, to get the whole thing working. It takes, you know, it's like putting your yard in rehab. Um, so it takes a year, maybe sometimes two, depending on what's going on. Um, and if there are particular minerals that have leached because it was so damaged, um, sometimes I will deal with those, um, those issues. But mostly those microbes in the compost tea start mining as soon as they're in the ground and they are finding the nutrient and they are sharing it with the plants. Making it bioavailable is the term, right? Exactly, yes. Um, and they don't make it available until the plant says they need it. So it's not like you're just putting water soluble nutrient on the ground that can leach out very quickly. Um, instead, you've got microbes in the soil that are allowing your plant to take nitrogen out of the air. I mean, the air, what our atmosphere is like 78% nitrogen, right? Why on earth do we need nitrogen fertilizer? Because we need more of it. We're junk. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of it out there. And if we just put back in the soil what used to be there and we get the heck out of the way, it will happen. Yep. Um, so yeah, I get those systems going, but I'm also doing as much education as I can. So um, taking time to talk to people, which I also really enjoy. Um, so doing something like this, or I'm, I'm working on a project right now that's a conceptual framework 
for applying soil health principles um, through development um, so that before anything has happened to build a new area of homes, um, you already know what you need to set in place to make all of that go in as healthy a direction as possible and reclaim it as quickly as possible. Gotcha. Are you getting traction with that from developers? Or are um, right now, yes, because it's a developer that's a nonprofit. Okay. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's a guide for the person in charge of that nonprofit because she's got to deal with engineers and um, contractors and suppliers and all of these different people who are going to want to do it the way they always do it. Um, and so she needs to have this framework so that she even knows what to ask without spending 10 years learning it like I have. <laughs> um, she needs a faster way of saying, okay, they're telling me it has to be done this way. Let me think it out in terms of these soil health principles. Where does that put me? Um, and if I have to do that, how do I mitigate for it? Um, and then what's the best way of mitigating? And if they're saying that they're going to do X, Y, Z, which is going to produce ABC, how do I check to make sure ABC is actually being produced? So gotcha. there are really big questions right now all around the world and what the benchmarks are. How, how do we test um, to show we're getting the results that we say we're getting. What are the tests we do? Because all of this needs to upscale very quickly. And there are companies interested in doing that and in having a resilient um, stream of suppliers. Uh, you know, we, We've already had rationing of vegetables in different places in the world. The UK in February of 2017 had to ration cucumbers and something else because of crazy weather in Spain. That was their source. So all of a sudden you were allowed to buy one or two cucumbers. That was it because there just weren't enough. And that's, one product you could do without for a while, but when that starts happening on a larger scale, which it will, um, we, we want to be ahead of that curve. Sure. Totally. Yeah. So cities can be helping farmers, farmers can be helping cities. Uh, we really should be paying farmers for the ecosystem services. You know, if they can show that they're storing CO2, why aren't we paying them for that? Um, if we pay them for that, then maybe they could be there during the day so they could move their animals as quickly as they needed to. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that cascade in a healthy way. Right now, they're cascading in an unhealthy way. We can turn that around. Mm-hmm.
Because, yeah, I think part of one of those things, you know, we talked about what's that gap between people knowing something's wrong and, and acting well. Um, <clears throat> one of it is usually there's incentives for people to not make a jump or not take a risk. Um, right. And right now, for farmers, most of the people I see come to um, the conferences on regenerative, how to do regenerative, are either people who are retiring or people who are just coming into it because of the promise of regenerative ag. It's all the people in the middle who are carrying all the debt who don't want to be the ones who lost the family farm. You know? Yep. And the irony is, I think, in the long run, they're more likely to lose the family farm by not making ecologically sound decisions. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, in the short run, you know, people in the cities, when they get worried about a virus, need cheap spaghetti. And, and, <laughs> and toilet paper, apparently. Yeah, apparently. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's... Just at a certain point, I had to decide that the difference between what I would spend on healthcare costs versus what I would spend on healthy food, um, that I would be spending much less money if I ate less food and it was healthier. Um, because the, the medical costs are insane. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I just about worked myself to death. Um, and I really had to pay attention to everything I ate. Um, because I just, you know, I was trying to run a business. I had to have a business. Mm -hmm. At business, you know, I had to get people to do these things in this timely manner, and we had to get money in and have money out. And uh, yeah. um, I'm not a good business person. Um, I'm just I. It's not my first love. Sure. And I don't think I it care. is for most of us who are in this scene, <laughs> in whatever way we are. Like, yeah, it's you know there are people who really love sport of business and great but it's very funny when I have a conversation with them and they don't understand how I do what I do but I don't understand how they do what they do and I'm not just being a wimp I don't just you know I actually don't get business when do I spend money on this? When do I spend money on that? You know, what are my benchmarks? What are my, you know, all of this stuff that I understand about nature, about business. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, yeah. But one of the paradoxes is we got to have a business or you find some nonprofit model, which is its own kind of business, really, the more I've gotten into them. And so, you know, even if you're trying to lead a holistic lifestyle and offer these regenerative products, you're still like, this is the paradox of e even our rebellion, we have to like act in kind of like the way the system makes us, I think. Right. 
Well, so I have a social entrepreneurship model. Okay. Um, which I learned at that same conference as the as the branding stuff. Um, so, um, for every square foot, I sell the tea by the square feet. So, for every square foot that somebody buys to make their yard sequester carbon or just make it look pretty, whatever. Um, I give an equal amount to a nonprofit growing food for people in the city um, because soil health is also absolutely the key to nutrient density in food. Mm -hmm. um, soon we will have this really amazing app that you can have on your phone um, that you can go to uh, the grocery store or the farmer's market and if there are five kinds of apples, you can go boop, 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 boop. And it will send the information up to the cloud and you will get a number back saying what the nutrient density is in that food. Mm -hmm. so, is there any way on what that app will be called when it releases? Uh, what are we calling it now? Um, it, it's part of the Real Food campaign. Um, uh, boy, what is it called? The, I don't I mean, remember what it's called. Yeah, that at least Real Food campaign, something people could Google. Right, and the Bionutrient Food Association is behind it. Mm. Um, yep. And if it isn't canceled, um, Dan Kittredge from Bionutrient Food Association, the BFA, Dan is teaching a two-day class at Gail um, Fuller's Farm in Severy, Kansas. Mm. Um, it's a two-day class. Um, nutrient density in food and so it's, it's if you're trying to grow anything um it's really invaluable uh some of the stuff that he first told me when i saw him teach um up in fairfield iowa um i didn't quite believe him like he said if your plants can produce complete proteins Pest insects can't eat them. And I thought, mm, that's a little too good to be true. Well, I'm now doing it in my front yard and I'm doing it for my clients and we don't have pest insects. So my, my clients have beautiful green trees, et cetera, and their neighbor's trees are all chewed up by Japanese beetles. Um, I don't, of pests and on my veggie garden in the front yard. Um, mm -hmm. Just, you know, that's nature's way. Nature's way is a healthy plant produces complete proteins. Pest insects can't eat them. When they can't pollute, produce a complete protein, they attract pests. It's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not that hard to get to that point. So yeah. yeah, there's this widespread idea. That's not the common sense we live in. It's pests are just, or plants are vulnerable. Pests will overcome them. That's why we need the, the glyphosate and the... Yep. Kill it. Kill it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really, really, really not healthy. So, well, if people wanted to avail yourselves of the York healthy services, where could they find you? Sure. Um, the website for the compost tea is madhattercomposttea.com. Okay. Um, 
and they're, I haven't had time to update it. So there may be old information in there. I mean, nothing important, but everything we talked about today is not in there. Um, I will be doing um, a class as part of Earth Day with um, Climate Council of Greater Kansas City, uh, which is all going online. I think Sunday night at six o'clock is when I give my talk. Um, so, like this Sunday? No, it's April nineteenth. Okay. Um, so I'll be talking there and talking about soil, water, food, um, and climate. Okay. I'll be talking about how that whole system works. Um, and I have to do it all in, I think it's 45 minutes or 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so less time than this podcast. I'll be talking fast. <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. It's, it's frustrating when you know all this stuff, if you don't have someone you can tell because it doesn't matter if I'm the only one who knows it. Right. It needs to be out there. And I'm not trying to corner any market. Um, the whole idea with the tea is that um, people get it going. Um, people learn to compost in a way that produces biologically active compost and put me out of business. That would be lovely. That'd be great. I'm 62. You know, I don't need to be in business for another 10 years. <laughs> Not very sporting of you. <laughs> I, I want to teach so many people um, that everybody's just doing it on their own. Yeah. Say something meaningful, please. It's been three years of stagnation, court dates and fees. Wondering if I will go free. Nothing will satisfy me, even if I burn this whole planet down, it seems. Won't learn a thing, I'll die from risking. I've got friends who would rather end society Cause there's no way of fixing these flaws And that's starting to make far more sense to me now Cause we're lazy and used to what's wrong It's been embedded inside us since the first breaths We're destroying the world where we live But I'm sitting here watching the TV in bed Wondering Dreams in between more sleeping. How will the 
prison showers be? Will I have to punch somebody just to get clean? Will there be something for me to eat? All of us are just frightened roosters and rick, ready to pounce and fight.